You're about to hear my conversation with the Chief Fixed Income Strategist, Dustin Reed. We talk about the inflation numbers, both in Canada and the U.S. We get his view on the Fitch downgrade and what it might mean for U.S. debt. And finally, we get his take on the weak COVID recovery out of China. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm back with my regular guest, Dustin Reed, our Chief Fixed Income Strategist. Dustin, welcome back. Thanks very much for having me, Matt. Why don't we get started today to talk about inflation? We often get an update from you on on inflation both north and south of the border, where we've had recent uh, CPI prints. Maybe we start in Canada. Uh, came in hotter than expected. What's your takeaway from the uh, the latest CPI number in Canada? Yeah, for sure. So the Canadian number, like you said, came in uh, quite a bit higher than expected on uh, on the monthly print, and a little bit more so on the on the on the annual print. As well, I think the market was expecting around 0.3 on the headline. It came in basically, basically twice that on the Canadian side. A, a bit, a bit academic, but the way the Canadian number gets gets produced here and, and shown is uh, is not seasonally adjusted. While in the U.S., it, it is seasonally adjusted, and you can get both versions for both numbers. But just the the number that you know, those of us that have Bloomberg and look at it when it comes across the screen, it get it's kind of calculated a little bit differently. Nevertheless, I still think that the the number is is pretty. It's pretty hot. Definitely not not overly friendly, at least at first blush, for, for Bank Canada. Uh, given that I think it probably wants to be done, we're seeing a fair bit. Uh, we're seeing a fair bit of what I would call structural price increases hold in there in the Canadian economy hmm. on things on not only the goods side but also, in particular, I would actually say the the services side. I actually kind of thought that. Uh, you know the price, famous price of the pump or gasoline prices, would have had a bigger impact in in the the July data, which we got in in August, um, and that wasn't necessarily the case. But there were a lot of underlying things in terms of uh, the makeup of the print that seemed to suggest that inflation here domestically has become a little bit more sticky structural than I think a lot of people uh, expected. Now, the Bank Canada. Part of the part of the CPI in Canada includes this uh, ever famous um, mortgage interest cost or MIC component, which is not a small, uh, which is not a, a massive component, but it's not a small component either. But we've seen a pretty big rise in the mortgage interest costs, right? The cost of mortgages, no surprise. Uh, Canada is a very a relatively uh, variable rate mortgage dependent market, right? Much more on a percentage basis than the US. Everyone sure. knows that. Uh, and so you kind of have this interesting little feedback loop where um, if variable rate mortgages are rising, then in theory, the costs of mortgages are rising. And then that feeds into the overall CPI number. And then in theory, the bank could look at that and say, well, inflation is rising, we have to do more. And you have somewhat of a, a negative feedback loop, at least from a from a mortgage interest cost perspective, uh, because higher prices kind of begats higher prices. Now, the bank, I think, is going to be very focused on Xing that out a little bit. And uh, so when you look at some of the core uh, metrics that the bank produces, whether it's uh, uh, trimmed or median, 
or mean uh, core rates. A lot often the MIC uh, mortgage interest costs are excluded from that, uh, and so the bank focuses on you know where, where what I would call kind of super super core or a trim mean type index to to move policy forward or not forward, so to speak. So it's an interesting conundrum that I think is happening in the in the Canadian market, which you really don't see as much in the U.S. The way the mortgage right. market, housing market, is structured, and then the way the the CPI basket is is also is also constructed. You know, but clearly, you know, I kind of step back. Hey, what does it all mean? The force of the trees type thing. Inflation here domestically is clearly a little sticky. Uh, you know, bordering structural. The bank clearly has policy rate at five percent. Uh, there's been some talk that the bank might need to do a little bit more. As we come into this call this morning, markets pricing maybe 21, 23 basis points worth of hikes still for the bank. Uh, but they take a while, maybe three or four meetings from now, so maybe into early next year. So nothing nothing imminent. And the market's still, I think, around nine or 10 basis points for its um, – for its uh, for the Bank of Canada's uh, September meeting, which I believe is the Wednesday after after Labor Day, Wednesday the sixth. Um, so again, not not a zero by any stretch. Uh, you're kind of at around forty percent of a twenty base twenty five basis point hike for for September. I would not I would not expect something in September. I think if they do something, the bank does something. It's an October decision, and uh, you know, as I've kind of been saying to um, in a couple of discussions. With October being a forecast meeting for the bank, um, an NPR meeting for the bank, if you can tell me where the bank thinks that the output gap is going to be in October, uh, six months after October, then you can probably tell me where rates are going to go. Definitely a camp, I think, not only within the bank, but on the street that think that Canadian rates should be higher on the back of this inflation number and inflation numbers more broadly. Uh, but the bank would say that it is already well into restrictive territory at, five, at have, with the policy rate of five percent, and I think the bank's relatively aware that a lot of these five-year fixed mortgages that were taken, particularly in 2019 and 2020, at least kind of before the pandemic really started, you know, obviously settling in. Uh, those resets obviously would come in in 24 and 25, maybe a little bit later this year too, 20, 2023. So I think the bank wants to see that and is a little bit reluctant to hike rates materially from here uh, and cause a significant strain in in additional financial conditions. So right. uh, you know you can slice and dice these these inflation and the employment numbers a lot of different ways, you know, and. Uh, Make it look the way you want, and going back to the old saying, you know, there's you know three things with um, you know how to look at data. You know, there's lies and lies, damn lies, and statistics. And sure. uh, you know, if you x out energy, food, and mortgage uh, interest costs, you can and look at a three month annualized run rate. You're well below two percent, which is fine. Of course, you know, I don't know anybody that can't live without you know food, um, sure. you know, heat. And uh, somewhere to live, right? I mean, everyone, everyone needs that stuff, so it's not very, it's not, it's not very, re- it's not very realistic. So uh, we'll you can't see even live bit. in your car under that scenario, Dustin. <laughs> right? That would that would also be challenging. So, so we'll have to see how the bank how the bank wants to do it. So you kind of have a headline number that's very unfriendly, uh, but you have kind of a super core number that's getting a little bit more friendly. 
um, but a structural situation. So my guess is the bank is probably very, very close to done. And uh, the okay. inflation numbers are important, shouldn't be ignored, but there are uh, – you know, there are some parts of it that I think are going to be that are going to be disconcerting for for parts in the bank, and this goes back to my whole theory of there's going to be at least two, if not three, camps in every central bank that are going to look at things a few different ways, and there's going to be a real dialogue as we get through this part of the cycle. Every every country is different, every economy is different, but there's going to be kind of you know, well, look at this, uh, this is way too high nominally. Oh, this is coming, and then you have people looking more at the delta or the slowing. Look, it's coming down. We don't need to do anything, and then you'll have some people in the middle, uh, and there's going to be a, a very big discussion. I think that's, a, that's what makes that's what makes the macro uh, landscape and environment here very very interesting from a from a portfolio management and trading perspective. You know, for for all asset classes really, um, and obviously in my particular space, fixed income and FX uh, for the next little bit. Sure. Why don't we turn to the to the U.S. to talk just uh, maybe some brief comments on the U.S. inflation number came in a little bit um, uh, lower than uh, expectations, but certainly in the realm of where expectations were. Uh, what's your takeaway from from that number? Yeah. So the U.S. a little bit different story for July. The monthly number coming in a little bit weaker than expected, as you as you suggest, or at least closer to expectation. That was a low number, I believe. The headline. Right. The headline print was around 0.2, and I think core was around around there as well. So you're seeing kind of that three-month annualized, rolling three-month annualized aggregate number as we move along month to month, uh, slowing for sure. And then this, you know, the famous core services CPI uh, X shelter, which has kind of the, been the Fed's, particularly for the first half of the year, the Fed's real uh, version of, of uh, inflation, call it super core. That it's been looking at also coming off, although rents and and owners equivalent rent, which is the kind of the the special one kind of in in the U.S. has also been very sticky, 0.4, 0.5-ish uh, on the monthly month over month. So I mean, obviously, 4.4 percent annualized, you can get to five percent relatively right. quickly, depending on what side of 0.4 you're on, and you know, 0.5 you can get to six percent annualized quite quickly, depending on what side of 0.5 you're on. So those are still those are still big numbers, and those are those are big weight shelter, right? Shelter in the U.S. Uh, component uh, is around I think 31 or 32 percent of the overall weight uh, for CPI. So it's a big it's a big number. Of course, the Fed uh, in theory focuses on core PCE as opposed to. CPI and the shelter components in core PCE as it's calculated are not quite as heavy in the weighting. So you're not necessarily seeing that that come through. Um, but nevertheless, we are seeing a slowing in the market is clearly latching on to that. And, and we're seeing some Fed speakers also talk about lower or not maybe not lower but slower slowing inflation clearly well off the peak and getting closer to a run rate that i think clearly more people are going to be at the fed more more comfortable in holding rates uh so i think that's that's obviously constructive and uh and you've seen the curve uh, not only not only move higher here on a yield basis for a number of reasons, but also start to steepen out on the idea that the inflation uh, issue is not over per se, but clearly uh, starting to become a little bit more in the in the rearview mirror. Right. You know, and I think that that's um, I think that's probably true. Uh, we are probably going to see the annual number. Uh, for the for CPI headline CPI in the U.S. still move higher in uh, September when we get the 
uh, when we get the September data. Sorry, in September when we get the August data. August. Yeah, and I think it probably be it's probably going to move up to around three and a half or maybe even three six. Hmm. Uh, and the CPI fixing market, the very relatively niche traded market, is also trading it in that perspective. And and I'm actually kind of taking my my estimate a, a little bit, a little bit from that traded market. Obviously, any traded market can be wrong, uh, and and maybe it will be. But there's a clear bias with the base effects that are coming out. Um, in uh, for the August data that prints in September, uh, that there is going to be a, maybe a little bit more upside risk to the to the annual number. But I think that's getting around. That's not necessarily unknown at this point. I think I think most in the market expect that, uh, and we'll see kind of how that goes. I mean, oil obviously is a big a big driver for headline in, insofar as as price at the pump, gasoline prices, and that those have been ticking higher for sure. Um, but I think the bulk of the inflation situation in the U.S. is is done for the moment, and it's probably fair to say that we're seeing a little bit less structural issues in the U.S. on the inflation side than here. Although it's a bit of a uh, that might be a bit of a, a bit of a coin toss. I think it kind of depends on what what subcomponents you you look at. But again, kind of stepping back and saying, okay, where are we here? You know, we were. You know, it's seven or eight percent on an annualized number for a while, both domestically here and in the U.S. And that's clearly come off significantly. And I think the next, the next real discussion point around inflation is where does it settle, and how comfortable are each, how com- comfortable is each central bank with their respective economic outlook and their their inflation outlook? How comfortable is each central bank? Having inflation at a higher than a higher level than two percent, which generally is the midpoint, if not the target for for inflation. Every everyone's a little bit different, but broadly speaking, obviously it's it's two percent. You know, are you comfortable with three? Are you comfortable with two seven? You know, what are you willing to do in terms of restricting the economy and and causing uh, lower output to get from you know X whatever that is two seven three point other to the you know the 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 2%. And I think again this is where these different camps in uh, these different banks are going to be really interesting. Some are going to be you know the real kind of hawkish types kind of the 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 right side of the the dove hawk spectrum so to speak would say have to get to 2 there's there's just no there's no give. More on the dovish side of the spectrum they would you know I think they would generally say we can can kind of let it go. I'm not really willing to cause this kind of economic malaise just to get to two percent, two and a half, two seven, even three is fine. And then obviously there's probably a third camp that's probably somewhere, somewhere in the middle. And that's where I think again there's a lot of opportunity. I think within the global macro uh, and in particular the uh, the fixed income and FX space in the next, I would say six to twelve months in terms of policy divergences here globally uh, around around the world. Let's stay with uh, the U.S. for for my next uh, question. Uh, We did see Fitch, the rating agency, downgrade U.S. government debt from AAA to AA+. Uh, They followed the S&P that did that about a decade ago. Uh, You now have two of the three major uh, rating agencies at AA+. Does this matter at all, Dustin? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, Yeah, I remember the, uh, and I'm sure many people do remember the the S&P downgrade in uh, somewhat ironically early August uh, 2011. I remember that. I think it was a Friday, if I remember correctly, <laughs> after hours. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so we had an early August uh, downgrade from Fitch here from AAA to AA plus on the U.S. sovereign debt, um, which I, I 
in, in terms of timing, I would say surprising. Uh, I don't think anyone was expecting it or many people were expecting it this week or, or that particular week or sort of thing. But when you look at the Fed's balance sheet or sorry, the U.S. balance sheet, Treasury's balance sheet, I should say, um, and where the U.S. fiscal story has been going and is probably headed, uh, it's not it's not really a surprise. And I think many people would actually say if the U.S. wasn't the U.S. with the global reserve currency of choice and obviously a relatively strong U.S. Treasury and demand for U.S. paper, um, the U.S. would actually be rated at a, at a lower level than even even AA+. So what's what's been interesting, uh, and we spent a lot of time on this in, on the fixed income team, is you've had what I would say a confluence of events that have come together here over the past three or four weeks that have really uh, moved uh, the market, our market in particular, and yields yields higher. And obviously, when the U.S. curve is moving uh, significantly, it generally has an impact and a similar directional impact on other global curves. So it's it's important. So we've seen yields quite a bit higher, and we've seen the curve quite a bit steeper. And a few things have come together. First, first the, the Bank of Japan meeting happened, I think, uh, about 12 hours after we recorded this last podcast. And the bank, although not necessarily tweaking its yield curve control policy officially, uh, is allowing market um, market directionality to move outside its band with a little bit more degrees of freedom. And so you've seen Japan yields move quite a bit higher, um, uh, at least for Japan. And so that has helped kind of push the global uh, the global curve story higher. So you had the Japan story, you had still and still have very strong what I would call output and labor market data out of the U.S., uh, whether it's the payroll data, um, unemployment rate claims. We had retail sales earlier this week, print for July. It was uh, on the nominal basis 1% month over month, which is extremely strong, 1% on the control group, which is basically the GDP feeder, um, the Atlanta Fed GDP forecast now, uh, indicators running at above 5% uh, for Q3. We don't have Q3, all of Q3 yet, obviously, we're in the middle of it, but it's running at 5%, above 5% actually real GDP growth, uh, quarter over quarter annualized, which is just hot, very hot, very fast. Um and then you had the Fitch downgrade. But the most important in that whole thing probably is, is the quarterly refunding announcement from the from the Treasury, the U.S. Treasury, which sounds a bit academic, but it's important. So to back up slightly, budget deficits in the U.S. have been ballooning over the last year plus for obvious reasons, right? There's been – there have been big packages – that have been pushed through by Congress uh, during and in the wake of the pandemic. Fair, fair enough. And um, and the budget balances at a federal level have been have been increasing rapidly. And so what's happened is that there was an expectation that the Treasury would go and borrow a certain amount. Well, not surprisingly, because the budget balance has been quite a bit. Uh, weaker or negative, so to speak, a deficit, bigger deficit, so to speak, um, the Treasury's had to uh, borrow more. So the Treasury's basically come and said, okay, we're actually going to borrow a lot more than you expect. And in three months' time, uh, which will be in November, we just had the August refunding announcement in November, we actually expect to be borrowing even more on a go-forward basis. And that has got people very, very concerned about 
the amount of U.S. paper that's going to be in the market. And just from a simple supply-demand perspective, when you increase the supply of anything, right, generally anything, but when you increase the supply of anything and your demand curve, let's assume the demand curve stays the same, you know, prices are generally going to be lower, right? So prices lower, yields higher. And here we are. So in a relatively simplistic framework, that's that's what's happened and is and is happening. And and I would actually add an, a fifth thing to that whole cauldron, not to throw everything at the wall, but you obviously have the Fed quantitative tightening program also running in the background, uh, and that's not changing. So that's generally seen as moving yields higher as well. But this fiscal story, I think, is really interesting. So in the duration of my career, and I don't want to say quite how old I am, but most people around my age have not really seen fiscal issuance um, supply as a main thematic driver for markets, at least not for a – it doesn't last for um, uh, what I would call over the medium term, months or quarters. Uh, Maybe it lasts for a week or two, sure, but it usually doesn't last for months or quarters. Is it different this time? And that is a question that I've been thinking about a lot the last few weeks, and we've been batting it around a fair bit on on the team as well. Can this thematic of fiscal, which a lot of us really have never seen in our careers, not because we're young, but just because it doesn't trade as a thematic, can this thematic and driver for markets, particularly fixed income markets, um, but it also has implications for equities and credit and cross-asset, obviously. Um, can that can that stick with us for a while? And should we, you know, should we be trading this as a thematic that can last for, let's say, months to start? Um, and I think it has a, a a very significant probability of sticking around for a while because I think people in the market are starting to wake up to this idea that uh, the U.S. fiscal story is not great and it's not getting better and the delta or the the speed of the change in terms of the the higher budget deficits is really there and Treasury is going to have to continue to issue a lot of debt. And who's going to pick up this paper? Who is going to buy this paper? And you need need to have people buying this paper. And with what's happening in Japan, kind of going back to where I was a couple minutes ago with the Japan story – Yields higher in Japan are making Japanese domestic investors more interested in buying their own paper, JGBs, Japanese government bonds, because they're they're more attractive now, right? Higher, you can get a higher yield at home, and so that and the cost of hedging from a Japanese investor perspective, hedging U.S. debt has become a lot more expensive, and so that trade, so to speak, has become less attractive. And so this flow uh, idea where Japanese investors, LifeCo's and and other institutional investors, are they going to continue to buy U.S. paper? Because if you have, again, if you have increased supply and the same demand, and now I'm kind of saying, well, maybe there's going to be a little bit less demand. Again, that is not great for prices, right? So prices lower, yields higher. So I think uh, that whole sphere. And those, I really haven't talked about the Fed or monetary or all that stuff that I often talk about. So we're spending a lot of time thinking about kind of uh, a different lens on, I mean, obviously all markets, but in particular my space, fixed income and to a slightly lesser extent FX. You know, what does it mean for the curve in terms of the notional level? 
and obviously the shape of the curve. And I think that's a really interesting thematic. And we'll see, you know, if I do if I do this, um, uh, you know, this this podcast in you know four weeks' time, give or take, if that theme is still with us. But again, I think that there's the possibility that 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 could be happening. I think that's one of the reasons we're seeing uh, the curve move quite a bit higher here. And I think investors should keep that in mind when they're looking at it. So there are things that happen on the monthly data grind that I say that I wouldn't necessarily look at, like the budget balance, which sounds really boring and it kind of is, but I think it, I think the market's going to be paying a lot more attention to that. So I think that's, that's something I want our listeners and our investors to think about and take away in terms of uh, what's happening and what what's really driving markets? Like, why are yields so high? Why are yields moving higher? Um, you know, what, why are things? You know, why is the cost of funding more expensive? Uh, what's happening with credit transmission mechanism? All that I think kind of leads back to this discussion of the last five six minutes around the quarterly refunding announcement and Bank of Japan and the output data the U.S. and quantitative tightening and uh, and obviously the Fitch the Fitch downgrade, which happened basically in the middle of what I would call a pseudo leak around what was probably going to happen with the quarterly refunding announcement and then the actual announcement from treasury the leak happened i forget the day of the week but during the day you know day 1 day x and then the moody the, the sorry the fitch announcement happened the night of that day of that, oh, of, of that day and then we had the official quarterly refunding announcement the next day so the fitch announcement would not have been a massive deal on its own Definitely not ignoring, but not a massive deal on its own. But becoming because it got sandwiched between 24 hours of the quarterly refunding announcement, which ended up being a massive upgrade and upgrade in the outlook for this for supply, it had a magnified impact on the market. Hmm. Very interesting, Dustin. Maybe uh, before we get to some of the trades that you prefer, uh, mm-hmm. just uh, I'd love a few quick comments on China. Uh, lots of news coming out of China. Uh, certainly, there's been a widespread disappointment on the sort of COVID bounce that uh, people were expecting. Uh, more calls for stimulus in order for them to reach their relatively modest GDP uh, growth uh, figure of, I think it was five and a half. Um, what's your view on China? Do you see stimulus uh, down the pike? And, and uh, how are you playing that? So I think the China story remains very, very interesting. On a number of fronts, China obviously reopened late last year. And uh, the the reopening looked very very strong for a couple of months, and then it it petered out relatively quickly, uh, early ish in the first half of this year of 2023. And since then, growth and pricing has been relatively weak. We're now seeing uh, headline CPI in China on an annual basis negative. Um, so, so deflation really, I think the, the last print was minus 0.3 year over mm-hmm. year. Uh, the output data is quite weak. Whether you look at retail sales, industrial production, those types of indicators also really quite slow and quite weak. The biggest number that I think is, is causing the most, the most, uh, concern is the, the TSF number, the total societal financing number, which is basically how much liquidity is getting passed through the banking system into consumers and, and businesses and new loans and to, and 
TSF are at lows that we haven't seen in many, many years. So there is not a lot of new money and not a lot of credit being transmitted to the economy, which obviously has a relatively negative uh, feedback loop in terms of what happens for the outlook and, and current play, state of play for economic growth. So policymakers this year have been what I would call tweaking on the margin. They've been easing rates and China's been kind of counter-cyclical to here domestically in Canada and the US and other other major economies globally. While many people have been, many economies and, and central banks have been hiking, China's been either doing little or, or easing um, over the same period. So China is concerned, I think, about reigniting a housing market bubble uh, in many ways. But what they've been doing, I think, has been not quite enough in terms of the relatively quick uh, slowdown in the output data, kind of the retail consumption data and and loan data, and and obviously also on the prices side with now uh, negative, uh, negative CPI on a headline basis. So what we've seen here in the last week or two is a number of attempts by policymakers to kind of gear it up. And so there was a bit of a, <clears throat> a surprise cut in the um, um, medium-term lending facility um, earlier this week. And there's been calls in the last 24 hours or so to ask banks to uh, spur on more lending. Uh, there's also been calls to intervene in the currency market because the Chinese currency against the U.S. dollar has hit uh, cyclical lows or, or dollar CNY has hit cyclical highs, so to speak, uh, when you look at it from a market convention perspective. So uh, my expectation is that we're going to see a lot more stimulus from China here in uh, the next few months. I, w- I would have expected it to have happened already, and I, I'll be the first to put my hand up and say I'm surprised that they haven't moved from what I would call tweaking on the margin to doing more uh, uh, significant uh, cuts from a, from a monetary perspective and injecting more liquidity in the economy. Also, actually, on that note, um, I think the night before last, earlier this week, China injected uh, the most amount of liquidity via its reverse repo program, uh, the most the most amount of liquidity into the banking system on a one day basis since since February. So I think that all that seems to suggest that policymakers are becoming more attuned to we need to do not only something but more, uh, and it needs to be more forceful. And I think that'll be. I think that'll be constructive. Obviously, seeing the property market, uh, you know, which we hold uh, on the fixed income side, I have a bit of a rough ride here the last the last few the last few months, as some property developers have uh, maybe not defaulted, but at least refused to pay some some dollar bonds and, and some and some other bonds on uh, on their outstanding debt structure. And so, uh, clearly, I think Chinese authorities are concerned about the go forward nature of this, and I think we are going to see more intervention. Uh, more intervention coming forward, uh, so we'll we'll see how that we'll see how that pans out. But from a an asset class perspective, you know, I think it's really interesting from a commodities perspective. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit on this about this on the Get Sharp podcast with respect to oil, but we're seeing a number of other commodities, not, not just because of China per se, but China demand in a number of other uh, commodities are is low, and we're seeing uh, I would say mini cycle lows in a, in a handful of other. You know, input commodities, and uh, you know, obviously, if we can see uh, China inject a fair a fair bit of liquidity in a relatively short time into the economy, that's going.
going to, it should help the, some commodity basket, particularly I would say the industrial commodity basket uh, going forward. But, um, and, that, and that obviously has a pretty good impact if we see commodity prices move higher. Important for, you know, Canada, uh, net exports, uh, Canadian sure. resources, obviously Canada equities, you know, versus the rest of the world. So the things that we're watching from kind of a cross asset perspective to see how how the Chinese authorities uh, manage this next part of the cycle. So that's why we spend a, a fair bit of a fair bit of time on this in terms of uh, what it means not only for China proper, but also what it means for um, uh, global demand and uh, and and cross asset valuation. Great context, Dustin. Um, we're getting tight on time, but I, I do want to make sure we get some view on some of the trades that you've put in uh, the, the portfolios. Maybe highlight uh, one or two of, of your favorite ones uh, over the past month or so. Sure. Okay. So a couple of them quick. Uh, the Japan trade, again, we've had on for a long time since last April. And with the Bank of Japan meeting a couple of weeks ago, just just after you and I did this last podcast, uh, a few of us stayed up late and traded the uh, the event itself, the Bank of Japan meeting, and we got some. And we've been short the futures, and that that went in our direction. So we we shaved some of our position there uh, and took some profit. We still hold a decent amount of position, and it depends on if you're looking at kind of the core plus portfolio or unconstrained or the global funds as to the the percentage weighting. Uh, but we basically took off about a third of our, our total position uh, in uh, JGB futures, and uh, but still hold a fair bit. And we still like the trade. I still think Japan is going to tweak further. Uh, the domestic inflation situation continues to move pretty aggressively. We saw big GDP numbers out of Japan uh, earlier this week, 6% annualized, big number uh, real GDP on, for the second quarter. Most of that was export-driven because of a weaker yen. So that probably right. isn't going to last, but it does have some inflationary pressure, and we're seeing some still inflationary pressure on the wages side. So we still like that trade, but we took it took opportunity to you know manage our risks, uh, so to speak, and and that, and that was that was good for us and our investors, which is which is great. Uh, we spend a lot of time looking at uh, real yields, which is kind of the second one. We're relatively mm-hmm. overweight, I would say, particularly in tips. Um, which continue to long end tips, which continue to yield now above two percent, uh, which is which is quite uh, quite an impressive number. So we continue to to like that, although uh, it's probably getting a little bit a little bit frothy. Uh, we would we would think, uh, but that that's a trade that a lot of investors should be looking at. I think in their portfolio in, in terms of adding. I was from a, a global perspective linkers, but in the U.S. you would call it tips, right? Treasury inflation protect. Uh, sorry, protected securities. In Canada, it's just a regular name, real return bonds. But those are those are interesting. Those are interesting trades for investors to be able to capture real yield. So again, uh, so just take the thirty-year tips at two percent. I think it might be two hundred seven. Let's call it two percent. So that means that you're, if you hold it to maturity, you're going to get paid two uh, percent above inflation. So you're going to get paid two percent real yield above. Uh, in addition to what what you would collect on inflation, so um, th- those are those are relatively attractive levels that versus what we've seen in in many years. And then the other trade I, th- I think I would highlight just really quick is the emerging market trade that we've had. 
Again, uh, we like the real yield capture, particularly in LATAM and Brazil and Max in particular, although we've added South mm. Africa. Um, and uh, we continue to hold, particularly in our unconstrained and global funds, we continue to hold. But I would also say we have a little bit in uh, our core plus mandates as well. Uh, the real yield capture in, in those has been very, very good. We've actually taken a little bit of profit in the Brazil trade uh, and rotated some of that exposure into South Africa. Uh, but those are the kind of the big three that we hold. We really like the real yield capture in mid Q2, particularly for Brazil, slightly less slightly less max. And uh, Brazil has started to ease rates as expected. Wasn't right. sure if they were going to start cutting in April or uh, sorry, in August or uh, or September, but they ended up uh, cutting by 50 basis points and the market was actually less than that. So they cut by more than expected in August, which is generally constructive if you own uh, if you own the paper, you receive the paper, so to speak. So it looks like that rate easing cycle has started and we're relatively comfortable. I mean, there's always idiosyncratic risk with every EM economy, um, of course. but we're relatively comfortable with holding that risk, uh, even though we've taken a little bit of profit because a lot of people have followed that, that trade after we got in and piled into it. So uh, we've shaved some risk there, but reallocated that risk back to back to South Africa. So within the EM space. So those are some of the big three. There are many, many others that we're looking at, but in the interest of time, maybe I'll, I'll leave it there for today. Well, Dustin, thanks so much for uh, walking through uh, your views on the market. I thought going into this conversation, there wasn't a lot to address because there wasn't a central bank need, but uh, I was wrong. And uh, thanks for walking us through some of these indices. So I appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. My pleasure. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 